take a minute to say good morning and welcome to everybody joining us from Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you with us this morning. We're in a series that we're calling Christianity Illustrated and we're looking at a few of the parables that Jesus told. And you got to remember Jesus didn't tell the parables to entertain. Jesus told the parables to transform. And as we read ourselves into the stories you'll see the need for change and often the vehicle for change as well. Well, we've looked at a number of parables thus far, and this morning we come to maybe the most famous of all of Jesus' parables. I'll give you a hint, and you tell me what it is. The Mr. Rogers parable. Any idea? The parable about good neighbors, the parable of the good Samaritan. Now, before we even read the parable, I have to uh, let you in on a little historical information. We often use the word Samaritan, and we have happy, warm, good thoughts. But that would not have been true in Jesus' day. In fact, to put good and Samaritan together would have been an oxymoron for the Jews in Jesus' day. Now, in our world, if you were to Google Good Samaritan Hospital, you would come up with dozens and dozens of hospitals. We have Samaritan's House, Samaritan's Purse, Samaritan's Pharmaceutical. We use the word Samaritan in a good sense, in a helpful sense, coming alongside people to help them out out of their desperate situation. In Jesus' day, Samaritan was almost like a curse word. And to put good with Samaritan to Jewish ears would have been an oxymoron. I tried to list some oxymorons to give you an idea. It would be like this. Scumsuckers Cafe. Would you go there for breakfast after show? Scum. How about this one? Salmonella Surgical Center. Would you go get your operation there? Listeria Lake and Fun Park. You go there? Well, that's kind of what Good Samaritan was, linking together words, concepts that don't go together. Samaritan was a terrible word. Good would never go with Samaritan. But we're going to look at this parable about neighboring because we're called to one another, each other, and neighboring is a key part of that. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab your phone, go to YouVersion. You can look at it there, grab a Bible out of the seat rack, grab your phone, iPad, whatever, and follow along as I read this parable about neighbors. And remember, read yourself into the story. That's how transformation comes. So here we go, beginning in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 
A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to the place where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, this uh, parable follows the form that we've looked at thus far. Jesus does not tell the parables as part of a prepared sermon. The parables typically come up in conversation. And so we see this parable growing out of a question, kind of a Q&A session Jesus is having. And so you have to understand the Q&A nature of what's going on, and that's part of the setting. So this religious leader comes up with a question. How many of you, when you were growing up, had a parent or a teacher say, Never answer a question with a question. Ever hear that? Yeah, I heard that too. Interestingly, Jesus always does that. Uh, Jesus usually answers a question with a question, and that's what, go, that, that's what is going on here. In fact, it's not a Q&A session. It's much more complicated. Here's what this section is. It's a Q&Q, A&A, Q&P session. There's a question and a question, an answer and an answer. Then there's another question and the parable. So this is a Q&Q, an A&A, and Q&P session. And if you kind of get the Q and Q and A and A and Q and P, you kind of understand the setting of what's going on. So let's work our way through all those Qs and Qs and A's and A's and stuff. Here we go. The religious expert, the teacher in the law, shows up and has a question. So he comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now let me ask you, just from what's up on the screen, is that an honest question? Is the religious expert coming up to Jesus with an honest question? He's really searching, trying to find out how he can gain eternal life. Heck no. He comes to Jesus to test him, to tempt him. They've got to understand when it says this guy was, a, was, was an expert in the law, that doesn't mean he was like a judge in a civil court. He was an expert in the Jewish law. He was an expert in the Old Testament. How do you think he would have answered the question himself. If he's an expert in the law, he knew or he thought he knew how people were going to inherit eternal life. So when he comes to Jesus and says, hey, how are people going to inherit eternal life? He thinks he knows how Jesus is going, answer, going to answer, and he certainly knows how he's going to answer. Here's what he would say as an expert in the law. If you keep the law, you get eternal life. If you don't keep the law, you don't get eternal life. It's that simple. He had dedicated his life to learning about the law. Therefore, you keep the law, you get eternal life. How did he expect Jesus to answer? This is where the test part comes in. Well, he had heard, and he'd probably watched firsthand, Jesus hung out with irreligious people, right? Jesus hung out with immoral people. Jesus hung out with outsiders and people who didn't know the law and didn't give a rip about the Old Testament. And so all of a sudden, Jesus hanging out with all these people that are outside their understanding and obedience to the law. He thought 
when he asked the question, how do you get eternal life? He thought Jesus was going to say, God gives eternal life to everybody. Just walk right in. Anybody can come. And when Jesus answered like that, this religious leader knew he had Jesus. Because if Jesus is contradicting what the Old Testament says, he's got him. He can't be a teacher from God. That's not how the conversation goes, though. He comes with a question to tempt and test, but Jesus answers his question with a question. Jesus says, well, you're a religious expert. You know the Old Testament law. What's written in the law? How do you read it? So answers a question with a question. So the guy answers the question. He says, well, um, here's a summary. Love God and love people. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and with all your... Now, that comes right from Deuteronomy, right? That comes right out of the law. And it's kind of a summary statement. We've got to love God more than anything else. We don't obey God primarily out of fear. We obey God out of love and honor. And so you've got to love God. But if you're really going to love God, since God loves people, you've got to love people too. So if we love God and love people, love God and love your neighbor, you're in. It's a good summary statement of the law. And my guess is Jesus knew how the guy was going to answer it. How do you get eternal life? Well, how do you read it? Well, you've got to love God, love people. Good. Then Jesus says, go do that. Go do that. Well, that kind of raises a question for people like us to go to church a lot. Um, why didn't Jesus answer the way we would answer? Like, here's my guess. If somebody comes up to you or many of you this week and they say, so what do I have to do to have eternal life? What do I have to do to find forgiveness? What do I have to do to find acceptance with God? Here's what you would say. You've got to accept Jesus as your personal savior. Why didn't Jesus say to this guy, what do you have to do to have eternal life? you got to accept me as your savior. Why didn't he say that? Because Jesus is smart. That's why. And we often answer that because we're dumb. In order to acknowledge you need a savior, you must first admit you need saving. In order to acknowledge you need to be rescued, you first have to admit that you need to be rescued. And so you're not going to accept Jesus as a rescuer unless you first admit that you're in a situation that's hopeless and helpless and you need to be rescued. So what Jesus is doing in this conversation, he's seeking to convince the guy that he is in a desperate situation. And if the guy were then to say, but I can't keep the law, that's impossible, Jesus would say, and what's impossible with men is my mission. That's why I'm here. But the guy has to first be convinced that he needs to be rescued. That's why we have the long discussion. So Jesus said, do this and you will live. Well, the guy has another question then, right? In order to justify himself, he says, hey, but like, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? If you think in terms of concentric circles, you can get an idea of what the guy's saying. Unless you think this guy's different than us, you have concentric circles too. You got a little circle in the middle, and then you kind of work your way out in concentric circles, getting bigger and bigger. And I would guarantee you, just like this guy, you want to draw the neighbor circle somewhere in those concentric circles a little closer to the middle than God wants you to draw it. So let's put ourselves into this guy's context. Would priests be, in, oh yeah, priests are our neighbors, right? They're the ones that work in the temple. They're the ones that perform the sacrifices. They jump through all the hoops that God set up. They're the guys that practice the ceremony. Everybody's got to love the priests. They're neighbors. 
Well, how about the Levites? Oh yeah, Levites, they may not be able to do the sacrifices, but they do all the work around the temple. They're in too. Levites are my name. We gotta love Levites. How about regular Jewish people? Yeah, you gotta love regular Jewish people. And so Jewish men, you gotta love them, gotta love Jewish women, gotta love Jewish kids. How about Gentiles? How about people way on the edges? How about outcasts? How about Samaritans? Oh no, we don't have to love them. The guy is asking Jesus, where do I draw the neighbor circle? So that those inside the neighbor circle, they're my neighbors, but those outside the neighbor circle, they may be human beings, maybe, but they're not my neighbors. I don't have to love them. The guy wants Jesus to tell him where to draw the neighbor circle. So where do you draw the neighbor circle? Homeless? Addicts? LGBTQ? Republicans? Democrats? You see, I'd be willing to bet that you and I draw that neighbor circle and we say, well, everybody inside, I really do have to love and care for them. But the people outside, I really don't have to care much about. I don't have to treat them like neighbors. My guess is you would say, yeah, my actual neighbors, those that live physically close to me, yeah, they're my neighbors. I need to care for them. And my co-workers and my family, in-laws, now they're kind of on the outside, right? The outlaws, they're outside the neighbor. How about your co-workers that take credit for your work? Your co-workers that slander and gossip about you? The co-workers that are working to get you out of that workplace, do you have to, are they neighbors? You see, we want to draw the circle too, right? And so this guy comes trying to justify himself by saying, Jesus, where should I draw the neighbor circle? I'm willing to love the people inside, but everybody outside that circle, I don't have to love them. And everybody in Jesus' day knew Samaritans would be on the outside of the neighbor circle. Gentiles outside, immoral, irreligious people outside, pagans and heathens outside. Jesus never technically answers the guy's question, but in a sense, he does with another question. Well, Jesus then tells the parable in answer to the question, who's my neighbor? Let's talk a little bit about the plot and the characters, all right? The plot and the characters. Okay, so here's the, you have to, you have to learn a little geography, right? So a little history about Samaritans. You have to learn a little geography. Uh, how many of you have ever been to the Holy Land? Have you been to Palestine, Israel? Oh, we got a few good. I've never been there, but I read about it and looked at maps, right? So here's how it goes. You have to understand this in order to understand what's going on. Jerusalem, the city, is located 3,000 feet above sea level. It's, right, it's called Mount Moriah because it's 3,000 feet up. That's why Jerusalem is such a fortified center because if you're going to try to attack Jerusalem, you have to run up the big hill. So Jerusalem, 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho, 1,000 feet below sea level. So can you do your math? 4,000 feet difference between Jerusalem and Jericho. But they're only 17 miles apart. Which means if you're going from Jericho to Jerusalem, you're climbing most of the way. And if you're riding your bike from Jerusalem to Jericho, you're coasting all the way down. Now, how do we, even in our day, how do we traverse a mountain either up or down? Lots of switchbacks, right? And so you go back and forth, back and forth, so you don't kill yourself careening down the hill. Well, that's also true. The road 
that went from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jericho to Jerusalem, had lots of switchbacks on it. Turn this way, turn that way, which meant it was perfect for robbers and thieves. People would be traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem, Jerusalem to Jericho, and the thieves would be hiding around the next switchback. So you would make the turn and you'd run right into the group of bandits. They would attack you, leave you for dead and steal all your stuff. So the road was actually called the road of blood for that reason, because it was known to be dangerous. Again, I've never been on that road of blood. I have walked in Central Park at night. That's pretty dangerous, right? I've walked in certain sections of Philadelphia long after dark. That can be scary. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. Two of the guys, this guy was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho on this dangerous road. And as they're traveling, they come across somebody that's beaten and bloody. That wasn't too uncommon. I mean, here are the main characters of the story. First of all, you have the victim. He's the beaten, bloody guy in the road, right? We don't know too much about him. My guess is everybody would have read him to be a Jew, though. So as Jesus is telling the story, the assumption would have been the beaten and bloody guy was Jewish. First guy that comes across the beaten, bloody guy is a priest traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, priests back in Jesus' day, yeah, being a priest wasn't a full-time job. You, know, you kind of put your time in and then you go home for a little bit. So either he's going to Jericho to go home or he's going to Jericho, the city of Palms, for some R&R. We're not quite sure, but he's going to Jerusalem to Jericho and he sees the victim, the beaten bloody guy in the road and he bends over, uh, oh no, and he crosses on the other side of the road. And everybody in Jesus' day would have said, that's right, that's right. The Levite, the second guy down, right? So the priest works in a temple, performs a sermon. The Levite, next one down, still works in a temple. He's not quite high as a priest, but he's pretty high up there. He crosses on the other side of the road, and no one in Jesus' audience would have batted an eye. Of course they'd cross on the other side of the road. There's some really good reasons for them to cross on the other side of the road. First of all, maybe this is a scam, right? Wouldn't you? You would have thought that, right? Maybe the beaten, bloody guy is pretending. Maybe he's one of the robbers. And so he's not really wounded. He has ketchup on his robe, right? And so he is banned. He's laying on the side of the road. He's not really wounded. He's a robber. And as soon as I, this unsuspecting priest or Levite, bend down to help the guy, they're going to jump out from around the switchback. They're going to beat me on the head. They're going to steal all my stuff. So for their own protection, because of the great danger, they crossed on the other side of the road, and you can bet they were looking both ways as they did. Not just that, they were religious. And if you're really religious, you don't help this guy. You may think, what? No, think about it. Priest and Levite, the Old Testament, the expert in the law asked the question, Jesus is trying to answer his question, if you touched a dead body, you were unclean and you had to jump through all these hoops in order to be clean again. And so if this guy's already dead and I touch him, hey, I've got at least a week's worth of work back at the temple in order to be cleansed so I go back on duty. If I touch this guy and he's alive, but then he dies, I'm unclean. I got to jump through all these hoops. It's going to cost me money and time to be made clean. Hey, because of my religious commitments and priorities, I can't help the guy because the law says if I touch a dead person, I become unclean. I can't help him because I'm really religious. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? How about this reason? It's not only inconvenient, it could be expensive to help the guy. 
After all, this guy's traveling on the road. He's headed somewhere. He's got an appointment. He's got an agenda. He's got a donkey. He's got wine. He's got oil. He's going to make a salad somewhere. Um, he's making his He's got plans. He's got priorities. He's got things he's doing. And this guy is going to interfere with his plans. And if the guy really needs help, it's going to be expensive. I'm going to have to pour some of my oil and wine onto this guy. He's going to want to ride my donkey where I'm supposed to ride the donkey. I mean, this is really going to mess up my life. So everybody would have known the same thing is to cross on the other side of the road. We only think we should help the guy because we know the story. We know the point Jesus is making. But everybody in Jesus' first audience would have said, of course they cross on the other side of the road because they're smart. Yeah, but not the Samaritan. Oh, the filthy, creepy Samaritan. The Samaritan comes along. And again, the Samaritan has the same dangers and inconveniences as the priest and the Levite. Same exact situation. But he goes over to the guy and he touches him. He takes some of his oil and wine, first aid of the first test of the uh, of the ancient world, pours the oil and wine on his wounds, puts him on his donkey, which means he now walks down the switchbacks. They go to the inn. The guy checks him in, gives him his Amex card, and says, "Just charge whatever he needs. Put it on my account." Like what? And then at the end, Jesus says, uh, so which one of the guys proved to be a neighbor to the guy in need? Huh. Not the priest, not the Levite, not the anticipated third character. You see, those three character stories were real familiar in Jesus. They're kind of familiar in our day too, right? So if you're in Jesus' first audience, the priest went on the other side of the road. The Levite went on the other side of the road. We all expect, and every one of Jesus' first listeners would have expected the next guy just to be a regular Jewish schmo, right? Regular Jewish guy. He's coming down the road, and the religious guys won't help, but the regular blue collar, he comes along and helps the guy. But not, that's not what Jesus did. He takes the anticipated third character and makes him a Samaritan, the Salmonella Listeria guy, right? He makes him. And then Jesus says, uh, so which of the three proved to be a neighbor to the guy in need? Jesus never answers the expert in the law's question, but he does. Who proved to be a neighbor? Not the priest. Who proved to be a neighbor to the victim? Not the Levite, but the Samaritan did. And you know what's really interesting? The expert in the law can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. So Jesus says, so which one proved to be a neighbor? The expert in the law didn't say the Samaritan. He said the one who showed him mercy. He can't even say the name. But Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Now go and do likewise. Interesting. All right, well, let's uh, play with some lessons. Just a couple of lessons, three lessons. Uh, we talk a lot here about continuing what Jesus started. And in a sense, that's what this parable is about. And so let's talk about continuing what Jesus started. If you want to continue what Jesus started, you and I will live the Jesus creed. Now, Scott McKnight wrote a book, oh, I guess 11 or 12 years ago, called The Jesus Creed. And all that Scott did was, <laughs> Scott said, I find it interesting that Christians for the most part, love creeds and catechisms and confessions. 
And so we have the Apostles' Creed. We have the Nicene Creed. We have different confessions. We like all that. But lo and behold, our love for creeds often keeps us from the Jesus Creed. What's the Jesus Creed? Love God, love people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Scott says, that's the Jesus Creed. So even if you're not really a creedal kind of guy, you have to like this creed because this is the Jesus Creed. Love God and love people. And in the book, here's what Scott does. He says, every parable Jesus ever told, every miracle Jesus ever performed, every sermon Jesus ever preached, every prayer Jesus ever prayed is actually a fleshing out of the Jesus Creed. So when we talk about continuing what Jesus started, we're really saying we need to love God and love people. We need to love God. and Now, here, here's a good little test. How do you know what you're loving most of all? Well, you can't ask yourself because you'll give a wrong answer, especially in church. You know, theologians through, through the years have said this. Wherever your mind goes when it doesn't have to go anywhere, that's what you love first and foremost. Let me say that again. When you don't have to think about anything, what do you normally think about? When your mind doesn't have to do something, what do you daydream about? When you're at work, supposed to be working, but your mind's wandering. What are you, what's your mind wandering to? When you're trying to pray, but your mind's wandering, you can't focus. Where does your mind go? Wherever your mind goes, when it doesn't have to go anywhere, that's your number one priority. Where did Jesus' mind go when it didn't have to? Jesus was always thinking about his father, right? Jesus always thinking about, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. I mean, Jesus lives the loving God part, and we talk an awful lot about that. But how about the loving people part? Do you see people in need and seek to meet their needs with the same gusto and enthusiasm that you seek to meet your own needs? That's what it means to love people. So you love God and love people. Now, again, Jesus tells the parable not to give us rungs on a ladder to kind of climb our way to heaven. He gives us the Jesus Creed to say, yes, love God first and foremost. Love your neighbors yourself. And when you use that as an evaluation tool, you will come up short. You'll realize that you need to be rescued. And when you need to be rescued, go to the only rescuer that will ever be provided. Go to Jesus. That's what he's trying to do with this guy. So the Jesus Creed is all about loving God and loving people. That's how we continue what Jesus started. But secondly, you ever notice that religion often gets in the way of continuing what Jesus started? So Charles, we're in church. I know that's why I'm saying it. Religion is often an obstacle rather than a vehicle to continue what Jesus started. Think of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. What was Jesus' favorite day to heal people? The Sabbath. You you can't find a healing that's not on the Sabbath. Jesus loves it. What day is that? Oh, Sabbath. Good. I got to do some healing today. Why did he do that? He was doing that to convince the religious leaders that they had their priorities out of whack. They were putting wrote subscription to some rules over and above loving God and loving people. So Jesus' favorite day for healing was the Sabbath. How about meals? The religious leaders of Jesus' day and the Jews made walls out of the commands from the Old Testament. You're not allowed to eat with these people. You can't eat these kind of foods. Jesus would always knock the walls down and use meals as doors to invite people in. Religion is often an obstacle not a vehicle 
to continue what Jesus started. So here it is again. Why did the priest and the Levite cross to the other side of earth? Because they were really religious. And part of their religion means they had to stay clean or they had to jump through the ceremonial hoops to be clean again. And so rather than becoming unclean, they crossed to the other side. And Jesus is saying, guys, you don't get it. It's loving God and loving people. It's not keeping all the details of a rule and forgetting God and forgetting people. Religion is often an impediment. Isn't that true for us too? Doesn't uh, all the times you're expected to be at church sometimes interfere with loving God and loving people? Meetings you have to go to, things you're volunteering for, showing up for this, showing up for that, put, punching this ticket, doing that. Yeah, sometimes religion is more of an obstacle than a vehicle. Our religious practice often interferes with actually doing what God calls us to do. Religion often gets in the way of continuing what Jesus started. So we provide lots of opportunities for you to serve. And by the way, I checked this morning, 320-some volunteers for KidFest. I think I'm beginning to be safe from this slime thing. Uh, we need 500. You only get a week or so to do it. Uh, but anyway, we give you those opportunities, not as hoops to somehow make God your debtor. We give you those things as opportunities to love God and love people. We give you those as opportunities to continue what Jesus started, not as ways to earn anything with God, but as ways to express the freedom that you have and the love that God has placed in your heart. So don't use religion and meetings and attendance and all those things to keep you from Continue what Jesus started. Use them as vehicles to extend and continue what Jesus started. And that really uh, brings us to a, another point. Notice the multifaceted needs that that Samaritan met. Physical needs were met, right? He applied the first aid of the first century. Um, relational needs, he was there touching him, delivering him to an inn where there were going to be other people that could care for him. Spiritual needs were met, financial needs. You know, one of the things that we work hard at at Calvary Church is that any gift that you give to Calvary Church by way of an offering goes to meet the multifaceted needs of people. So we have staff members and some key volunteers. Their job is to vet individuals and organizations that meet physical needs of people so that we can put our resources into play to meet physical needs. And they vet opportunities to meet relational needs and psychological needs. And yes, we seek to meet spiritual needs, those multifaceted needs. So in a sense, the pressure's off, you and me, trying to figure out how to meet all of those different needs your gift to Calvary Church actually gets spent to meet those multifaceted needs, and we have people vetting individuals and organizations that help us do that. Don't let religion keep you from continuing what Jesus started. And then lastly, receiving and giving. If Jesus would have told the parable this way, there was a Samaritan beaten and bloody in the road. And first the priest went by and he walked to another side of the road. Then a Levite went by on the other side of the road. But then just a regular Jewish guy went on the road and he really bent down and helped the guy. Everybody and the religious lawyer, he would have thought, okay, so I need to extend my neighboring circle. But by making the Samaritan the healer and the life giver, Jesus turns the table and the first hearers, that Jewish lawyer, he would surely have put himself into the shoes of the victim before he put himself into the shoes of the Samaritan. So what's the point? 
unless you first receive healing and life and debt being paid and relationship and access from Jesus, you do not have the resources to do that with anybody else. You know, often our problem is not the giving part. Often our problem is we're not very good at the receiving part. It's one thing to give to meet the needs of others, but boy, it's another thing to have people give to meet your needs. We don't like that part. So Jesus doesn't answer the guy's question. Just receive me as your personal savior. He tells him a story. And in the story, we find that if the religious leader would put himself first into the shoes of the victim, the hopeless and helpless one, and here's Jesus, the outcast, who all the religious leaders and people of the day look down on and scorn, the outcast comes and provides healing and life and sustenance, then he has the resource to be able to go and do that for other people. Experience and receive the work that Jesus does, then extend that to other people. So go and do likewise. First, experience, and then extend. That's how the gospel works. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this story that pictures everybody we know and pictures ourselves in graphic detail. Lord, I pray that you give us the courage to read ourselves into the story. And Lord, would you give us the courage to read ourselves into the story of the hopeless and the helpless victim who finds healing and life through the ministry of the outcast Jesus and then has the mission to continue what Jesus did for us by extending that to other people. Thanks for that privilege. Thanks for that responsibility. We pray in Christ's name.